Ufo Radio International Podcast Show. Before they got to Mount Rainier, he had already thought to himself that these must be some new aircraft of the Air Force. The next day, the story was all over the place. Uh, on uh, the 25th of, of June, the terminology flying saucers was invented. Newscaster in every newspaper across the nation has made headlines out of it, and this afternoon we are honored indeed to have here in our studio this man, Kenneth Arnold, who we believe may be able to give us a first-hand account and give you the same on what happened. Kenneth, first of all, if you'll move on. Hello, everyone. This is a second episode of UFO International Podcast Show with your host Giuliano Marinkovic and this episode is recorded on June 24, 2017. Yes, it is a 70th anniversary of the Kenneth Arnold Anthological UFO sighting. On June 24, 1947, Kenneth Arnold, an experienced private pilot, saw nine unusual objects flying at an extraordinary speed near Mount Rainier in Washington. The incident was the origin of the phrase flying saucers and started a worldwide fascination with UFOs. I'm actually reading an intro of the book Three Minutes in June, the UFO sighting that changed the world by Dr. Bruce McCabe veteran UFO researcher and investigator and I'm happy to announce that I arranged the interview with Bruce on this day so he could present us his new book published by Richard Dolan Press and we dissected the case in great detail we went through the circumstances of Kenneth Arnold's flight when he saw nine unusual objects we also dealt with 14 proposed explanations by skeptics and investigators. We will hear about the explanation that was proposed by Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was a consultant to the Air Force investigative projects like Sign, Grudge and Blue Book. And most known skeptics Phil Klaas and Donald Manzel also had their input into this case. I also want to add, before you start to listen my interview with Bruce McCabe, uh, it will be good to prepare yourself and you will find in the description of this episode a link to an image that gives great geographical overview of the Kenneth Arnold's path. So you can open it and you can follow up the progress of Kenneth's flight more easily. So we'll hear everything in a great detail when we return in a minute. It's a pleasure uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Bruce McCabe, uh, one of the veteran researchers in the UFO field. And I was actually the member of the same uh, UFO mailing list called UFO Updates by late Errol Bruce Knapp. And for many years I was following his posts. And recently he has a new book by Richard Dolan Press. Uh, three minutes in June, and this interview is conducted on June 24, 2017. 
So it's uh, actually 70 years anniversary of the legendary Kenneth Arnold case. But before we dwell into that, uh, I would like for Bruce to introduce himself to us, uh, to give some highlights from his rich bio, so we could get uh, better insight into his credentials and his research work. So Bruce, the mic is yours. Okay, well, I... Uh Back in the 1950s, when I was growing up, of course, we were hearing movies about flying saucers and stuff. And I read a book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was the first director of the so-called Project Blue Book that the Air Force ran. And uh, when I got to the end of that book, uh, it appeared to me that... Um, Captain Ruppelt was right on the edge of the fence, I might say, a little a push of a feather would be enough to tip him over onto the uh, ET side, but he didn't actually come out and say that. That was probably in 1957 or 58 when I read that book, and uh, of course at that time I did, there wasn't anything I could do about it. I just sort of read the book and noted what it said and uh, went on to the rest of my life. I went to a a technical school, got a PhD, uh, a Bachelor of Science in Physics, and then I went to American University in Washington, D.C. and got a uh, Master's and a PhD in Physics. Uh, and then in 1972, I started working for the Navy as a physicist, and I worked for 36 and a quarter years, retiring in 2008. Now, in the um, middle 1960s, of course, UFO sightings were happening all the time. Uh, especially starting in June of 1947. They continued with more, some years more, and some years less sightings. And in the middle of uh, the 1960s, 65-66 time frame, there was a big flap of sightings, uh, a, a number of sighting reports per day uh, would suddenly increase. And uh, this uh, uh, increase caused a lot of press, Newspaper stories, and I went out and got, got myself what was then a, a, a book uh, on UFOs and read the book and decided there might be something here. I, I found it hard to believe that everybody could be crazy that was reporting these things. Crazy or lying, which are the uh, sort of primary explanations offered by the skeptics. Anyway, in 1968, I decided to uh, take some positive action, as it were. I went to a lecture by a couple of gentlemen from an organization called NICAP, the National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena, that was one of the biggest UFO, civilian UFO groups back in the 50s and 60s. And I uh, went to the office of NICAP, which was in uh, Washington, D.C., where I was going to school, and I volunteered to do some work for an ICAP, volunteered answering questions and stuff. And from that uh, humble beginning, I uh, got to go out with this local uh, UFO research investigation group. NICAP had UFO investigation groups at a number of places in, in the, throughout the United States and even in the world where there would be several people get together and go ahead and do an investigation of a reported sighting. And so I got to uh, uh, see the, the 
methods of investigation and uh, went on some sighting investigations, which uh, were not a, did not seem to be explainable. That uh, sort of got me interested even more in the subject. Uh, and when I studied the explanations offered by the skeptics, very often the explanations themselves were unphysical, and uh, I thought that was kind of strange that the skeptics would offer explanations that didn't make any sense. That suggested to me that maybe something was really going on. At that point, I became more active in the early 70s and investigated a number of famous cases like the uh, Gemini 11 astronaut sighting in uh, uh, September of uh, 1960, uh, 1966 that was, and then the Skylab 3 sighting uh, in, in September of 1973. Uh, <clears throat> the sighting that really put me on the map, I guess you might say, was my investigation into the uh, famous Trent photo case. Paul Trent took two photos in Linville, Oregon on May 11, 1950. And those two photos have probably been published in more places than any other photos. Uh, they, I uh, managed to get a hold of the original negatives and was able to analyze the original negatives. I also talked to Mrs. Trent a number of times, collected together a lot of uh, verbal testimony by people who knew the Trents and basically concluded that their story was probably real. I didn't see it, it seemed to be inconsistent with their lifestyle to imagine them hoaxing some UFO photos of all things. There were other cases that I looked into in the 1970s, probably the biggest one in the 70s that I looked at was the New Zealand sightings in December 31st, 1978 which involved uh, uh, freighter aircraft carrying newspapers from Wellington, New Zealand, south to Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, in the middle of the night, and them seeing un unexpected and strange lighted objects moving around, picked up on ground radar, <coughs> the air airport radar, uh, picked up on airplane radar, uh, there was a news crew on board that made a tape recording of, of what was going on on board the airplane. There was a man with a 16 millimeter Bolex camera um, video filming these things with 16 millimeter film. And there was a tape recording made at the Wellington Air Traffic Control Center. And the five witnesses involved. So there was, was quite a uh, quite a gold mine of information, you might say. I spent several years investigating that and wrote a number of papers on it. I also investigated the uh, 18, 1986 uh, Japan Airlines Flight 1628 uh, flight, which uh, I wrote a, a major report on that. It was published in the, the International UFO Reporter in 1987. Uh, People didn't pay much attention to it, though, until John Callahan, who was the uh, Federal Aeronautics Administration investigator of that case, went public with his his version of it in the mid-1990s. And uh, since then, that case has become uh, one of the best ones around. 
I've done a number of other investigations, including uh, Gulf Breeze. And anyway, the bottom line is I've investigated a lot of sightings. I've also done a lot of history. <clears throat> I uh, read carefully numerous documents from the uh, release under the Freedom of Information Act. I was the first person to get a hold of the FBI documents. And they uh, uh, shed an interesting light on the... Uh, documents of Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, the, the uh, three projects that were run by the Air Force. The uh, Air Force told the FBI stuff that the, uh, they wouldn't tell the American people. Like, uh, several percent of the UFO sightings couldn't be explained, and the top Air Force officials were seriously considering the possibility of interplanetary ships. That sort of came to a head in 1952 in the summer when there were a major flap of sightings. Uh, the Air Force got uh, up to 50 sightings per day, several hundred per month and so on for a short period of time. <clears throat> uh, I put the, all this history uh, into a book that was published a couple of years ago called the FBI-CIA UFO Connection. If you read that book and you'll see what the government was doing uh, in these early years and how it basically uh, made uh, uh, the, the government created a tradition that there was nothing to UFOs, a tradition. That's hard to beat tradition. Uh, that, that meant that the uh, news media in particular would always treat the subject with a tongue-in-cheek type approach that, uh, well, we know there's really nothing going on, but Joe Blow says uh, he saw something really weird in the sky and uh, so we'll just laugh at them and go, and go our merry way and pay, and pay no attention. Uh, if you read the book that I just recently published, uh, the book on Kenneth Arnold, you get an in-depth view of Kenneth Arnold's report, which uh, started sort of started the whole thing off, you might say. Yeah. And uh, then you read the FBI CIA UFO connection, you find out what happened after Arnold's report. What happened to the, the uh, major? What happened to the field of ufology in general? Uh, absolutely, and uh, for example, I just did an experiment. I typed uh, UFO term into Google, and there is one hundred and forty-six million uh, results hits. And for the new guy uh, who is coming to the UFO field, I definitely recommend Bruce's website. Uh, the cases that are selected there are top-notch cases, uh, the really great highlights, uh, rich history of work, papers, articles, and selection of really uh, ec excellent cases. So if you don't want to waste your time trying to filter out everything that's on the Internet, you can go strictly to the Bruce site and you can save you yourself a big amount of time and find really a great selection of uh, these uh, cases. Really in-depth so, yeah. in analysis of, uh, of each case, and you find that um, within the first five years there was enough information available to make a positive conclusion. Uh, things that happen, like for example, I analyzed the White Sands, New Mexico sightings, um, and found documents indicating that, that proving that, um, first of all, Unidentified objects had flown over White Sands while tests were being carried out on rockets, and then these 
sightings were covered up by the guy who wrote the final report on uh, the uh, uh, green ball, green fireball mystery that this is part of. Uh, you'll find a lot of sightings uh, from the old days and some from from recently. The most recent, I think, uh, a big, a large uh, uh, case was the uh, the um, Mexican Air Force. Oh, oh, yeah, I do recall oh. that. Yeah, I, I do recall Mexico sightings. So I do recall when the UFO update uh, list you even provide some analysis of that case, too. Right. Uh, okay, uh, well, it's a really great selection of cases, but before we go into Kenneth Arnold case with more details, I'm interested in what stage of your research career, if I may say, you uh, decided to. Uh, try to evaluate Kenneth Arnold. Was it uh, in the early stage of your career? Uh, I do recall the page of the Kenneth Arnold sighting on your website is present, I don't know, at least 10, 15 years. I do recall very well of that uh, page. But I'm interested when you decided, okay, now it's the time to go into this case and to finally break it down. Well, I, uh, of course, was aware of the Kenneth Arnold case early on because virtually every book that, that talks about the subject starts off with the Arnold case, however they want to approach it. Skeptical books tend to say, approach it similarly, well, Kenneth Arnold saw something in the sky, we don't know what it was, probably wasn't anything very big, but he, his sighting went, went viral, what <laughs> we would now say it went viral. In the old days, uh, it was a, a, a headliner for numerous newspapers. Uh, so, so anyway, we. Uh... Yeah, I, I I was asking. So, was it in the early stage of your research career that you immediately started to evaluate it, or somewhere in the middle, or more later? I, I just read read the case and I was aware of it. Now, in the uh, middle 1990s, 1994, 95 timeframe, I decided it was time to. Uh, uh, respond to the skeptical uh, explanations that have been offered for the Kenneth Arnold case, and I wrote a page series of a couple of papers that appeared in the International UFO Reporter magazine of the Center for UFO Studies. This is in 1995, where I tackled the uh, I debunked the debunkers, you might say. Um, J. Allen Hynek's explanation, the several explanations by uh, uh, Donald, Dr. Donald Menzel. Heineck was the Air Force's astronomy consultant for many years, uh, and he tried to explain all the cases one way or another. Uh, Donald Menzel was a uh, astrophysicist at Harvard University, and he wrote the first UFO book by scientists. Uh, he wrote that back in, in 1953, and uh, had several explanations for several suggested explanations or proposed explanations. For the Arnold sighting, of course, none of which made any sense, but that's beside the point. He had, quote, explained it, unquote, and that's all the general press public had to know. Uh, so anyway, I wrote this, wrote this long paper, a couple of papers, that was published in 1995. Then some uh, skeptics came up with other explanations in the late 1990s and uh, early 2000s, and I wrote some more about... Uh, um, the so-called Pelican explanation. 
but I didn't put it all together until um, last December, I guess. I was thinking, well, you know, I, I might not be around for the 75th anniversary. <laughs> so uh, I grab onto the 70th anniversary of UFOs and try to write a definitive book on uh, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, in which I uh, uh, tackle all the explanations that have been offered. Fourteen proposed explanations. And I do this in such a way that the reader learns how to analyze a sighting, how to analyze the de details from uh, what the person says. You get a good good version of the history of the sighting. You have to have a good version of the history of the sighting first, and then you can start going to a, what could it be that the person saw was it a mistaken sighting, which is basically you, you fail to identify whatever is up in the sky. Presumably the original witness doesn't identify it, otherwise he would, wouldn't tell you about it as being a UFO. If he can't identify it, then he reports as accurately as he can to the uh, UFO investigator, and UFO investigator is supposed to um, find, try to find out what could be there that the person saw. And so I show how this all happens in the book and how it all applies to the Kenneth Arnold case, and then I proceed to uh, knock down each one of the 14 explanations that have been offered. Uh, and uh, I, this is not a biography of Kenneth Arnold, because he lived until 1984, and this book concentrates just on the three minutes of the sighting, analyzing the sighting itself, what he said about it, um, and what, whether any of the explanations make any sense. If you, I don't know if there is a, uh, a biography of, of Kenneth Arnold who had sightings after this particular one on the 24th. He had sightings in the days, weeks, and years afterwards. And um, this had quite an effect on his life, as you may well imagine. He went from being essentially a local, a, a local boy, a businessman who flew an airplane, but not, not, nobody who was famous. And, and one day he became an internationally famous person when uh, his story was circulated in the first in the press and then on the radio stations. And within a couple of days, he was known by probably a large portion of the population of the world because his story carried not just to the United States, but also in other countries. Why that happened, I think I have figured out. Uh, and uh, when we go in depth in his, uh, going to depth in his uh, analysis of his sighting, I'll explain to you what I uh, sort of discovered, but I will say in general, a general statement is I have a greater appreciation for the Kenneth Arnold sighting now after this careful analysis than I did before. Yeah, and I think you have really nicely put it in the book when you said that Kenneth Arnold was actually interviewing himself. So he was really providing the, the much detail, the best details that he can give. Uh, he was sort of putting himself in the role uh, of providing a data for the investigation, providing the best possible details that he can uh, remember. And I think your book really is providing a nice service to the readers. Uh, it's a great breakdown of the case and even uh, we have some appendix uh, sections. Uh, uh, we have even additional live data on Kenneth Arnold, so some 
background of his life is also present there, which is also great. It gives really nice holistic picture of the man and the case. But I guess we can uh, now uh, go chronologically to that day, 70 years ago, on June 24, 1947. And it's also the origin of the modern era of the UFO investigation, of the UFO phenomena. I think it is important to notice that UFO phenomena in the modern era didn't start with some prosaic sighting from the guy, from the public somewhere, uh, people that don't know, they don't understand astronomical phenomena, but actually it came from aeronautical branch. So uh, the first sighting that actually was causing media interest came from the pilot and it happened in the air, which is, I think, really important to so we could have continuity that pilot sightings have really good quality history there. So I guess we can start with his flight, how everything started, uh, connected also with his business, and what led him to that crucial three minutes that actually changed the world. <coughs> well, of course, we have uh, things happening all over the world at all sorts of times, and uh, sometimes uh, a whole bunch of things happen coincidentally, which produce an interesting result. And um, Kenneth Arnold was the right man at the right time, at the right place, with the right with the right attitude. He was the right man because he was uh, um, technically oriented. He had tried to get a uh, go to college to become a, a chemical engineer. But he was at college, for, I think, on a sports scholarship or whatever, and he, a sports injury killed that career. So he became a, a salesman and then an owner of a company uh, that sold fire control equipment. And he, his company sold equipment over a large area in the northwest of the United States, the states of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and so on. And... Um, to go from one business trip, one business appointment to another, he he flew. He learned how to fly when he was a teenager, I believe it was, and uh, kept up his flying as he uh, went through adulthood and had several thousand hours worth of time in the air flying over mountains with a special uh, airplane that was specially designed for mountain flying. And so he was well familiar with uh, the area and the effects of what to expect in weather and turbulence and all sorts of things like that. So he was a experienced pilot, and uh, he had this scientific attitude towards stuff. He was at the right place at the right time. Uh, how he happened to be at the right place? Well, we know that he was uh, uh, flying. He had flown in the morning to Chehalis, Washington, to um, do some business. Now, that's a place is west of where his uh, sighting occurred. You really have to have a map available, and there isn't one in the book that shows you where he was flying. He, he flew from, he was going to go from uh, this place called Chehalis, Washington, to another place called Yakima, Washington. But on the way, he was going to uh, look for a uh, crashed military transport that was somewhere on the uh, flank, the lower parts of um, Mount Rainier. 
Now he's flying in a, over the so-called Cascade Range of mountains in the state of Washington, the highest mountain being Mount Rainier at 14,400 feet. He just sort of sticks right up out of the atmosphere, out of the, sticks right up out of all the other mountains, which you peak out around 7,000 feet altitude. So anyway, he um, went past Mount Rainier looking for this uh, airplane, uh, evidence of an airplane crash, didn't see it. Made a U-turn near a place called Mineral, Washington, and started heading towards the east, towards Yakima, to go home. And uh, it was during that period of time that he had his sighting. Now, if you uh, close your eyes and imagine a mountainous area and being up in the air with respect to the mountains, a sunny day, uh, very light haze, no turbulence in the air, and um, you can see for maybe a hundred miles uh, in any, almost any direction. <clears throat> and he was heading heading east, paying no. Well, as he says, it was good, excellent flying weather. A, a typical, like a typical pilot, he just sort of leaned back and take in the view, so to speak. Suddenly, he was startled by a flash of light on his airplane. And he said that his first thought was uh, that he, he was actually scared, in a sense, by a startled and scared. He thought he was too close to some other airplane, had uh, flown right in front of him somehow or other and reflected the sun onto his airplane. But as he looked around, he couldn't see any nearby airplane. He did see a DC-4 aircraft, four-engine uh, passenger plane, uh, about 15 miles to his left and north. He's heading east, roughly east, and uh, this plane was uh, north of him, far to the left. As he's looking around, he sees this, a flash again, but this time he's looking at the source of the flash. Uh, if you read his descriptions, the first flash, he says, it was on the surfaces of his aircraft, and he, uh, it must have been an extremely bright flash because the surfaces of his aircraft were already lit by the sun and by the bright skylight that just sort of permeates everything. So there must have been a considerable bright uh, increase in brightness of his uh, nose of his airplane or whatever he was looking at at the time to uh, notice that the brightness had increased like a flash of light. So he looks around and then he sees far to his left um, flashes of light coming at a high rate of speed. As they come along, he begins to see um, that they have a weird shape and they have a weird way of traveling. They're in a, a, a chain or a line, uh, sort of an echelon formation, uh, but with the uh, lead object being up above all the rest of them and it's tapering. Slant, uh, the uh, line of objects slants downwards, the lowest one being at the tail. It was in a group of uh, Five and then four, I believe, or four and then five, whatever. The um, objects were coming along at a high speed, and he could see he, they were far to his left, to the north, and they were traveling southward along a line that was going to take them between him and Mount Rainier. Now, his little airplane was about 25 miles west-southwest of Mount Rainier at this point and heading eastward. 
So he sees these objects come along and he sees that they're going to go between him and Mount Rainier. Um, not, not at the top of the mountain, but down quite a ways. He thought they were at his altitude of about 9,500 feet because they seemed to be on the uh, horizon. But uh, my guess is that he was off by two degrees, that they were actually a couple of degrees lower than the horizon. Kind of hard to tell what the horizon is when you're in an airplane anyway. Um, and they were, he reported that they seemed to go in and out of the mountain peaks that were south of Mount Rainier. So they went past Mount Rainier, then they went into a, a ridge line uh, of, or a series of mountain peaks. That he says sometimes they were on the other side of the mountain peak, and sometimes they were on his side of the mountain peak as they went along. So he had an idea of where they were. Uh, before they got to Mount Rainier, he had already thought to himself that these must be some new aircraft of the Air Force, although he, no matter how hard he stared at them, he couldn't see what he would call wings, he couldn't see engines, he couldn't see a vertical stabilizer, um, couldn't see a fuselage. The, what he drew for the Air Force is a drawing of a sort of a semicircular thing on the front with a uh, convex triangular back end, sort of like coming to a peak at the back. And uh, yeah, there were nine of these. Uh, he, he realized later on that the, uh, actually there were eight that were like that, and then one next to the last one um, had a double crescent in it. That uh, was a, a strange looking one compared to the others. But anyway, as these things well travel along, he says, he writes that uh, uh, pilots are always talking about um, the speed of aircraft and how fast they can go and all that. And so he thought, these things are moving pretty fast. He thought he would see if he could uh, measure their speed. Uh, not everybody, this is one reason why he was the right man to be there. Instead of just sort of sitting in his uh, cockpit watching these things go by with his jaw on the floor because of how surprised he was, he actually decided to try to do a measurement. Now, Mount Rainier at 14,400 feet uh, stuck way up in the sky. Uh, and uh, south of Mount Rainier is another mountain called Mount Adams. And there was another, these are all volcanoes, by the way. Hope, we hope extinct volcanoes. Uh, we hope. Uh, Mount St. Helens, however, is not an extinct volcano. It blew up not too long ago. 83, I think it was. And uh, he had... Um, Mount Adams and Mount St. Helens in the south of him as marker, geographical markers that stood up above the uh, uh, horizon far enough so he could use them as marking posts. It's almost like sticking a post into the ground at one place, sticking a post into the ground in another place, standing behind, at some distance from these posts and measuring the time that it takes for these odd objects to go from one post to the next post. In this case, it was from one volcano to the next volcano. He didn't know whether they would go in a straight line and continue or not. He just assumed that if they did, he could measure the speed. So he has on his dashboard of his airplane a clock with a sweep second hand. That is a big second hand, easy to see. And uh, he said he recalled that he um, looked when the first one went past uh, the edge of Mount Rainier. Uh, his clock ran, read one minute. One minute of 3 p.m., one minute before 3 p.m. Uh, so he noted that down in his mind. And then he continued to watch these uh, 
things flying along, just to make sure there was no reflections of the glass windows of his aircraft. He turned his aircraft to the, the right. He's sitting in the pilot seat, which is on the left side of the airplane, and he's going to open up his window. These objects were east of him, so he turned his plane to the right, that is, heading southward, and looked out through the open window, and he didn't, he didn't see him better, but they weren't. It's obviously, they weren't reflections or anything having to do with the, uh, with the window itself. So he continued to watch as they traveled along in, and going in and out of the mountain peaks south of uh, Mount Rainier. And he watched them. And you see them, because they were flashing, these are very brilliant flashes. He could see the, how, where they were all the way down to the Mount, Mount Adams. And uh, when, they, when, they, when the last one crossed Mount Adams, he uh, looked at his clock and it read, 42 seconds after three, the, the, these things had traveled the distance from Mount Rainier, Mount Adams, in 142, 102 seconds, 60 seconds plus 42, 102 seconds. He thought that was pretty fast, but uh, he, he writes that he wasn't that perturbed about it at, at the time. It wasn't until later that he did some accurate calculations that he began to really realize something strange had happened. But in any case, he, could, he saw these objects as they were going past Mount Rainier, and they're flipping and flashing, he says. They were not flying along like an ordinary airplane, uh, horizontal level track. Uh, they apparently uh, tilted left and right, maybe front and back, and uh, they kept flashing, and he thought that they were flashing sunlight, uh, uh, the sun being reflected from there shiny top surfaces. You can see that they had a very shiny top surface with something on the top of the surface. He didn't know what it was, but uh, there was something on the top surface, but it was very shiny, and he assumed that these flashes were flashes of sunlight being reflected. Anybody can do it in their own experiment and see how bright that can be. He said they were bright enough to uh, hurt, hurt your eyes and compare it with a welder's um, Welders, uh, the, fly, the, uh, the brightness you get when you do welding, uh, except that, that was whitish and blue, more blue than the uh, light that he was seeing reflected from these objects. But anyway, he assumed it was a sunlight reflection, and uh, that it would require a considerable angle of tilt to line up with the sun. Uh, so anyway, he had, he, he was... It's important to notice that he was doing measurements. One, there was one other measurement. He wanted to estimate how big they were. So he looked at the angular size of these objects. He, he, he used a gadget known as a Zeus fastener, D-Z-U-S, that holds the uh, cover or cowling onto the uh, front of the engine. And he used this as a reference. He held it out in his arms and looked at the objects compared to the object size this is really, really the angular size with the uh, size of this Zeus fastener at arm's length. And then he rotated around and looked at that DC-4 airplane that was uh, north of him, uh, he thought, 15 miles at the time. And uh, he compared that with the Zeus fastener. He concluded that the size of the object was about the same as the spacing of the engines in the, between in this um, uh, airplane. And uh, those engines are spaced about more than 60 feet. Uh, in my own analysis, I'm guessing that they're probably, the objects were probably 80 to 100 feet in size. 
but in any event, he did a he did a measurement. He made measurements of the speed, effectively, and he made a measurement of the angular size. And uh, with uh, with those measurements, uh, we learned something about the objects. He um, was wide awake as it was all going on, no doubt. He was flying his airplane. He, did, he said the uh, he didn't have to worry about turbulence because there was none. So he could spend time paying attention to the objects and doing these measurements. Then he, uh, he basically flew home and um, or flew to the next, flew to Yakima, Washington, where he landed at the airport and told some of, some of his friends about what he had just seen. This was still in the uh, late, the, the late middle of the afternoon, probably about four o'clock. He told his friends and they uh, didn't quite believe him, but on the other hand, they didn't know of any likelihood that Kenneth Arnold had ever pulled any hoaxes or uh, he was a reasonably straightforward, business-like type person, not likely to tell a big story or make up a story that would sound impossible anyway. He, he thought at the time, he talked to these first people, that, uh, the objects were going very fast, faster than any jet aircraft that he was aware of, and uh, he was told by some of his pilot friends that that maybe there was a high-speed missile being developed by uh, the Air Force. <clears throat> anyway, he then left the Yakima, Washington, and flew to another place called Pendleton, Oregon, for more, another business trip the next day. And uh, by the time when he got to Pendleton, there were newspaper reporters asking him about these, this sighting, these uh, high-speed objects that he had seen flying by. What, what was the story on those? So they. His story made it into some, I guess, some evening, evening papers. The next day, his story was all over the place uh, on uh, the 25th of, of June. And uh, it was the 25th or 26th that uh, the terminology flying saucers was invented, not because Kenneth Arnold claimed that they were saucers. He said the way they flew, he gave several analogies, but the one that stuck was, the way a saucer would flip it flat, flip it back and forth, if you skip it on water, a spinning saucer. He said the objects did not seem to be spinning, but they were flipping and flashing, flipping back and forth uh, like a uh, saucer or a stone skipped on the surface of the water. And of course, that set that dynamics, that sort of dynamics is entirely different from the way uh, any aircraft that we have uh, would travel. Anyway, uh, on his way from uh, Yakima to Pendleton, Oregon, he did a more accurate calculation using a map to determine the spacing between Mount Adams and Mount Rainier, and came up with 1,700 miles an hour. He figured he must have been made some errors, but allowing for errors in where you measure the mountain spacing and timing and so on, the lowest number he could come up with was 1,200. So he told his, his buddies that he had um, seen these objects traveling at about 1,200 miles an hour. Now, to put this in perspective, the fastest jet aircraft uh, were around 650 or so miles an hour. And Chuck Yeager was the first man to break the so-called break the sound barrier, that is, go faster than the speed of sound in whatever medium you're going in, creating a shock wave. The first man to uh, break the sound barrier was Chuck Yeager in September, I think it was, of 1947. In other words, several months after Arnold's sighting. 
he had measured objects traveling at 1,700 miles an hour, and uh, that was already 1,000 miles an hour faster than our fastest jets. So naturally, the uh, pilots and so on were interested in the speed, but they couldn't believe the uh, flight dynamics. And um, I, it is my impression from having studied this whole thing, however, that the reason his story made it so, to such a uh, wide uh, circulation was because of the speed itself uh, interested everybody. How could something be going that fast? Uh, had the Air Force come up with some totally new device? You have to realize we're talking about only two years after the Second World War ended. And during the time of the Second World War, from the late 30s up until the late 40s, uh, technological inventions, technological advances were coming hand over fist. We had all sorts of things going on, with the atomic bomb being the, maybe the top dog in terms of new technologies, but they had radar and uh, uh, various, all sorts of military equipment. So people were accustomed to the idea that some new thing was coming along, and uh, therefore uh, they didn't immediately reject the idea that there was something flying at 1,700 miles an hour. It was just the Air Force had told anybody. That was their, their uh, opinion. And believing that it was a uh, Air Force jet was sort of a cover, you might say, for Arnold to uh, get away with talking about something that's flying at 1,700 miles an hour. Instead of uh, immediately saying, well, there's absolutely nothing that can do that, you're you're, you're wrong or you're crazy. Uh, the people who uh, heard the story had to admit, well, maybe there really is something right, that could go that fast. Anyway, it's a matter of record that he is, uh, he was uh, interviewed two days after the uh, event on a uh, radio station. His uh, transcription of that interview is in the book. Uh, I think that's Appendix 1. Uh, appendix yes, it 2 is. tells you about Arnold himself. Um, anyway, uh, his story caught the uh, interest of newspapers and radio stations and so on around the world. Arnold was not the only person who saw these things, but he was the only person whose report uh, was widely publicized. Other people saw stuff. Other people had seen stuff in the sky. Well, you can go back into ancient times, of course, but I was thinking of the, the spring of 1947. Strange things were happening up in the sky. And people were seeing these objects and, and wondering what they were, some various things, but they weren't reporting them to anybody. They didn't know that anybody cared about it. Uh, it wasn't until after Arnold's sighting was publicized that uh, a bunch of sightings came out of the woodwork that had occurred before Arnold's sighting. And there were sightings on the same day and approximately the same time as Arnold. And one sighting in particular, which is uh, just like Arnold Part 2, that's Fred Johnson, a prospector who was on Mount Adams. And he wrote a letter to the Air Force saying, I was on Mount Adams at the same time. I saw these objects at the same time as the, uh, the man from Boise, Idaho, that is uh, Kenneth Arnold. Remember, Arnold timed these objects as they went past Mount Rainier and he tra tracked them all the way down to pass Mount Adams. Well, Fred Johnson, the uh, prospector, said he was prospecting at an altitude of 5,000 feet 
Um, and he, in the afternoon, these objects went over his head, and he looked at one of them in particular uh, with a telescope, and he could say that they were absolutely true. He had never seen anything like this before. They were going very fast, tipping up and on edge, and going from flat to vertical and so on. Uh, and he noticed that uh, his compass, as these things approached, his compass started to rotate and wobble back and forth. And then it stopped wobbling when they went off into the distance. So anyway, he was interviewed. He, he wrote a letter to the Air Force, and then he was interviewed by the FBI. And the bottom line is, um, Fred Johnson sighting is uh, obviously a, a, an addition to the uh, Kenneth Arnold case, the same thing. And oddly enough, the Air Force claims to have explained Kenneth Arnold sighting as a mirage. Ken and Fred Johnson sighting, they leave as unexplained. If you look at the record of Project Blue Book, 13,000 sightings analyzed um, starting in 1947 and going uh, up through 1969. Of those 13,000, they claim about 740 to leave left unexplained. And Fred Johnson's is the first of those unexplained sightings. As I said, there were some other sightings of flashes of light uh, going through the sky by other people on the same day as Arnold. His sighting was publicized the primarily the next day uh, in newspapers, and in the next few days, uh, newspaper stories were repeated, but then they became aware, the news media became aware of other sightings going on, and this was actually the beginning of the 1947 UFO flap. Uh, that is a Time, period of time when the sightings are just coming one after another. The number of sightings uh, was a couple of a couple of sightings. I think it was 20 sightings on the day of, Mount a of uh, Kenneth Arnold, and increased to uh, about 100 sightings in two weeks. Two weeks later, 100 sightings a day. Um, then we have the Roswell case, and uh, probably everybody knows about the so-called Roswell crash case which was immediately covered up by the Air Force as being a weather balloon. And that dropped out uh, of consideration for 30 years. Nobody paid any attention to it. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, until 1978 and nine, when Jesse Marcel and the rest of witnesses were located. Uh, I, this was really one of the finest breakdowns of Kenneth Arnold case that I ever heard. Thank you so much for that, uh, Bruce. And I think the the uh, details of the case, like you really nicely explained, the first the brightness and the flash that caused him attention towards the objects, unusual line of uh, flight that also caused him to be focused. And we can be really thankful to him for his focus. He actually tried, like you said, to... Uh, measure the speed. He used the board clock and he also tried to measure the size with the gadget from the arm's length, uh, which are really uh, great uh, sections in, in the whole uh, case. And yeah, uh, Fred Johnson, Prospector, with a really nice correlation that is also in your book. But I wanted just quickly to clear one detail that I'm often noticing in some books and articles that people are wrongly mentioning that, for example, as soon as Arnold was seeing this object, that he was radioing the Yakima uh, airport. However, he uh, reported only after he landed there uh, 
But I wanted to clear this up. I think you are also addressing that in the book. Uh, he actually mentioned this only when he landed. He said specifically that he had no radio in the, in the airplane. He wanted to make it as lightweight as possible for this mountain flying. And so he was not able to call anybody until he, uh, he couldn't talk to anybody until he landed and went into the airport building. Bottom line is he had no radio on board his aircraft. Yeah, that's that's great that that uh, we clear this up because I'm often noticing this uh, wrong reference that uh, some uh, authors are making on articles and so on. Uh, I think we can now move to uh, uh, now a uh, uh, second part of the saga uh, and uh, a list of, uh, like you said, suggested uh, explanations. Even Arnold himself was toying with the idea, uh, trying to explain hardly, trying to correlate what he saw. But, but some of these explanations are really not standing uh, in, in when they are confronted with facts. For example, uh, modes in the eye, you are explaining this nicely in the book, reflections from mirrors, uh, again, uh, also uh, large nearby airplanes. For example, Hynek was trying to adopt his measurements because he didn't like the figures based on Arnold uh, core data, right? Right. Well, uh, Hynek, um, of course, had the, uh, the testimony of uh, Arnold to, to go by. But he injected his own theoretical knowledge about vision. And he started off by assuming that you couldn't really see any shape of anything that's smaller than three minutes of arc. And since Arnold had said he had seen uh, shape as these things flipped and flashed, uh, silhouetted against the mountain, the, the angular size must have been bigger than three minutes of arc. So uh, I uh, used this plus the distance of the some 20, 25 or 23 miles between uh, Arnold and the uh, objects uh, to calculate a size. And he came up with a, a 2,000 feet as being an estimated size from the front to the back of these objects going at 1,700 miles an hour. And Heinrich couldn't, couldn't buy that big objects going at extremely high speed. So uh, he, he sort of changed the, the data and so if they weren't as far away as um, Arnold had thought, and if they were a typical large aircraft, uh, it would turn out that uh, if they uh, were six miles away in large aircraft, then uh, the speed of the large aircraft, 400 miles an hour, uh, would create an angular rate of speed that was the same as the angular rate that Arnold had calculated that corresponded to 1,700 miles an hour. This angular rate of speed would look like 1,700 miles an hour uh, if you obviously were six miles away. And um, this, uh, as I point out, the strange thing about this assumption of Hynek leading to big Hynek's conclusion that they could have been large, ordinary large aircraft traveling in front of Arnold. If Arnold says he could see at a distance of 15 miles, he could see a DC-4 aircraft, and he could even see the engine spacing between them, Arnold's eyeballs must have been pretty good. How could he miss airplane at, at six miles if he could see him easily at six, 15 miles? Uh, Heineck doesn't uh, tackle that problem. 
it basically assumes Arnold has lousy eyesight, but obviously Arnold does not have lousy eyesight. Yeah. Uh, I, I think now, that, yeah. Uh, let me uh, interject one thing before we go farther into these explanations. Uh, I, I did something in Appendix 4 that you won't find in any other book ever, and that is calculate the uh, brightness of a uh, sun flash. I'm taking Arnold's literally when he says the surface brightness of his aircraft increased. That is, he saw a flash of light on the surface of his aircraft when these objects were way to the north. It's not too impressive to say that objects, if you're looking straight at an, a, a light, like a flashlight, that it's bright. But if you uh, are looking at a, a surface which is already illuminated and somebody turns on a flashlight, it's going to have to be a very bright flashlight for you to uh, see a bright a change in the illumination. So I'm uh, observing that the sun reflected off a mirror 50 miles, let's say, from Arnold uh, when Arnold first uh, saw this, this flash. There's sunlight directly on the airplane and sunlight reflected from a uh, mirror surface of one of these objects. This is a hypothesis of me that is needed to go into uh, this calculation. If you assume it was a sunlight reflection that he saw reflected off the surface of his aircraft, uh, you can calculate just how much uh, brightness there would be from the sun reflected off a, a mirror of a certain size uh, at a distance of 50 miles. And uh, if you do that, you find that there's no way that the sun could have uh, created a sun, a sun reflection could have hit his craft, his airplane enough for him to notice any notice anything. This is all in Appendix Four, where I uh, uh, suggest that instead of being flashes of sunlight, this was actually more like a laser beams that were being shot out by the object, which were creating very bright spots on uh, whatever wherever they were pointed. Um, as I said, there were other people who saw flashes in the sky, too, at, at that time. And uh, it could be that these objects were using lasers as a, or something like a laser, as a radar, laser radar type system to keep track of where they were. Or you could even speculate that they were trying to communicate a signal, signal Kenneth Arnold that something, that something was coming along. Whatever, the bottom line is I don't think that uh, the flashes were actually sunlight reflections. Yeah, that, 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 that's explained in the book, and I also uh, remember it quite clearly. Before we move to the finale, uh, I just wanted to mention uh, one other thing regarding explanations. I guess the case was uh, evaluated so many times by skeptics because it's the origin of the modern wave, and I guess there is some hope in there that if this case was finally uh, explained completely, then the continuum and the continuation of the UFO phenomena will sort of break down based on that. So I guess that is why it was dissected so, so many times. But I do recall uh, on the UFO updates mailing list, there was a great flame wars at the time regarding Pelican hypothesis, which was fun to read at the time, and I do recall these terms, uh, Pelicanists and so on. 
So, and I do know that you had a role there and that you uh, also uh, confronted the facts uh, during these debates. So maybe we can say a little bit of that and also class uh, had hand in the meteor theory. I mean, all these theories are trying uh, uh, with uh, all efforts available to, to somehow to completely strike down the case. But again, if we go by the data that is there and which was recorded by the Kenneth Arnold, it's the case is like that. And only if we change the data forcibly, then maybe we can adopt the hypothesis. But maybe a little bit about this Pelican theory that I do recall was discussed so many times on UFO updates. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting that we have uh, over many, many years now, people, various people coming in and saying, well, it was this, well, it was that, well, it was something else. Uh, it starts off with uh, Kenneth Arnold himself, assuming that these are Air Force aircraft that are uh, built to fly in some way that he's never seen before. If not the Air Force, if not the U.S. Air Force, maybe a second a fallback position was the Soviet Air Force uh, trying uh, to fly their aircraft over uh, over the United States for some reason or other. Uh, now I have not been explicit in in uh, mentioning the what might be called a Nazi UFO theory that um, the Horton brothers or somebody had built a flying disc that was able to uh, travel. At, hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, uh, lots of people are into the, uh, what might be called a Nazi UFO theory, uh, that, uh, uh, which even goes so far as to say that Hitler escaped to uh, uh, Antarctica and set up a place there where they build uh, flying saucers and threaten the threat. Uh, it's a really some bizarre stuff going on. Uh, even just today, in a discussion of the Kenneth Arnold case, somebody brought up a flying wing. Uh, there were no there were no nine flying wings going past Mount Rainier. Um, probably wasn't even one at the time. At the point, uh, Jack, Jack Northrop might have been flying himself, but uh, over they wouldn't do it over a civilian area. It would be over a classified area if they were doing it at all. Uh, I have not been explicit in, in rejecting that. It's part of the 14, 14 explanations I uh, work on. Where, um, Alan, Alan Hynek's explanation uh, that there were large nearby aircraft, which doesn't make any sense because he could see a, uh, clearly see an aircraft that was uh, twice as far as Hynek's estimate of six, six miles. <clears throat> then uh, Donald Menzel came along and he offered a total of six explanations over you know, the two in his first book in 1953, these are all weather-related weather blasts of snow, or reflections of light from haze layer, uh, things that make no, no sense at all. Uh, in his second book in 1966, one of the explanations was Mirage, which is what uh, the Air Force finally settled on. If you look up the uh, uh, Project Blue Book listing, of all the cases that are in the, uh, the record, 13,000 cases. Now you can find Kenneth Arnold sighting, and when you do, you'll find that it's listed as a mirage, which makes no sense. Uh, mountaintop mirage uh, stays on top of the mountain, above the mountain. Uh, it does not go left or right, and these objects, of course, are clearly going from, from left to right. <coughs> uh, the more modern 
explanations. Um, Cage Davidson of uh, the uh, San Francisco Examiner uh, t picking up on what, some stuff that Philip Glass, Philip Glass had told him about the meteors suggested that uh, Arnold saw meteors. <clears throat> this was in a sometime in the 1990s, early 1990s, I forget um, the exact date, but apparently uh, Glass had thought meteors might be possible and he passes on the suggestion to Kay Davis and Davis has found out that well, uh, in terms of times of meteors, they're more likely to be in uh, June in the afternoon or something like that. Uh, but if you look at the technical characteristics of meteors themselves, traveling at uh, five or more miles per hour, uh, miles per second, I should say, um, traveling through our atmosphere, they create, they compress the atmosphere ahead of them and heat it uh, in microseconds, they heat the atmosphere to such a point that uh, it's a plasma. And as the uh, electrons that have been joggled away from their home atoms fall back to their original positions, they emit light. And so you see light emitted by uh, uh, electrons falling back into their orbitals of the uh, molecules and atoms of the atmosphere. That requires extreme speed and extreme heat. If a meteor comes along and uh, it's bright enough to glow, as soon as it gets into the dense atmosphere, down under a few miles of that of atmosphere, uh, a few miles, a few miles, 10 or 20 miles of height, the atmosphere gets thick enough to cool the meteor. Once it gets cooled, it doesn't glow anymore, and it may or may not land on the Earth, but it's not going to be glowing. Uh, the objects that Arnold saw repeatedly flashed, so that's impossibility for a meteor. Once it stops, once it once it cools off, it doesn't heat up again as it travels along. And then we have this situation, uh, the most recent explanation in the, the latter half of the 1990s, was pelicans or geese. It started off as being geese. Arnold himself thought, compared it with a flight of geese, and he says. When we first saw these things, they looked like a flight of geese, uh, but uh, clearly it became clear that they were not geese. So what about the pelican explanation, or geese? Uh, pelican is a choice because it's a bigger bird. The claim is that the pelican can go at 50 miles an hour. Well, that's pretty damn fast for a bird, I suppose, but it's not as fast as Arnold's airplane, which is going at more than 100 miles an hour. And uh, the pelicanists, the people who except the pelican theory, in spite of everything else, point out that the, the so-called high speed of the pelicans and the fact that they uh, are very white underneath and if they tilt up sideways, might appear to be flashing white light at uh, Arnold's aircraft. Of course, to, make, to be able to have the same angular rate and angular size as uh, the objects that were moving uh, the, uh, Arnold reported a pelican would have to be within about um, two miles of two miles ahead of Arnold, uh, and about four feet in, in wingspan. Uh, and you'd have to have a situation where Arnold, for some reason or other, couldn't identify them as pelicans. But a real killer for this uh, explanation is when Arnold says he turned his plane to the right, turned his plane, uh, so that he was flying parallel to the objects, and he opened his window. So he was heading in the same direction they were, except he was doing twice the speed they were. 
it would take him a few seconds at the most to realize that either he was gaining on them if they had gotten ahead of him somehow, or he would be gaining on them as he headed towards them, or if they were behind him, he would be leaving them farther behind. It would only take a couple of seconds to realize that it was happening, and he'd never, never think that they were going so much faster than he was that there was no way he could catch up, which is the actual situation. Uh, he realized he could he could turn in the direction of the objects, but they were going uh, 17 times faster than he was. So anyway, that, we've had explanations offered over a period of 1947 all the way up to the late 1990s. Nobody's offered any explanation since then. Uh, so I guess uh, the explanations have run their course, and now we're left with animal sighting. Exactly. And your book is giving nice synthesis of all these explanations in, in the current context of the space-time and what we can learn today. And after the elimination of all these explanations one by one, you are also proposing your own hypothesis, which is the heart of your book. Can you reflect shortly on that in the finale of our interview? Well... These things look like they're manufactured objects doing something, and so uh, I conclude that they're uh, evidence of non-human intelligence, NHI, or um, alien flying craft, AFC. Uh, and uh, I end the book asking the question, essentially, uh, well, after pointing out that Arnold was the right guy, the right time, at the right place, with the right attitude, his attitude towards it being scientific, and he's going to make measurements if he can do it. Uh, after pointing out that he was the right man at the right time at the right place and so on, uh, I asked the question, with all these things, just a matter of chance that everything came out right. I pointed out things like, for example, the fact that he was at 9,500 feet at the time gave him a, a view that the person on the ground wouldn't have had. Had he been on the ground seeing these things fly over, there's no way he would have been able to have time to time time their, their passage. They would have been out of his field of view. Why? Because down, down at the ground level, you've got trees, you've got mountains, you've got all sorts of obstructions. Because he was up in the atmosphere, up in the up at a, well, 9,000 feet, because he was up high, he could take advantage of um, Mount Rainier and Mount Adams uh, to uh, use his... Uh, geographical sighting points, uh, as I said, it would not have been possible for somebody who was on the ground. So, a lot, and, and, and then his, his attitude towards it, instead of just sort of sitting in the airplane, watching him go by, say, wow, those were fast, and trying to tell his friends, I saw some objects that were really fast, I don't know how fast they were, but they were fast. Uh, it's much more impressive that he did some calculation and uh, came up with a number that um, was astonishing, an astonishing number, uh, but it attracted the interest of a, a lot of people who are into airplanes. Could there really be something that we've built that's going that fast? <clears throat> anyway, I, I asked the question, is this a confluence of events uh, just accidental, or somehow could it have been arranged? But I just sort of leave that as a point for speculation. Exactly. And I would just like to mention that there is a really nice picture in the book that is 
uh, giving great overview of the geography of the area, uh, Mount Rainier, Mount Adams, so readers will be, uh, it will be easy for readers to understand the, uh, the path of the flight of Kenneth Arnold's plane and uh, his perspective towards the objects. And this picture is also on your website. I will put it in the description of this uh, show. Uh, and I think you have done really great historical service with this book and also for the new generation of readers. It's a really nice synthesis. I also heard some critics that they are saying why we are going to these old cases, why we are wasting time on that. But I couldn't disagree more. I think that any synthesis is important. Any review or evaluation is really could give us something that we overlooked in the past. And I can definitely recommend uh, Bruce's book. Uh, uh, try to check it out, especially if you are interested in the field. This is a good starter, so you could get good insight into the history. A and Bruce, for then, can you give us something uh, about uh, your current projects? Do you have any additional plans? Or do you have any other books in the work? And where can people uh, get this book in the first place? Well, first of all, let me uh, look, uh, say a little bit more about the philosophy uh, involved here. Um, as I say in the conclusion, I've been uh, spending time looking at UFO cases for, for many, many years, and I looked at a lot of them. And uh, it didn't matter uh, what, what you had for a UFO case. It was skeptics who were rejecting it one way or another. So I point out I was sort of getting nowhere. And I then asked myself, maybe we should go back to the beginning and see what we missed. What, what is there about the early sightings that uh, we should have concentrated on? Huh. And I realized that we've been spending more time explaining stuff than actually trying to absorb what it means. But then I uh, went back and reviewed the cases, wondering, well, what cases should I look at in particular? And Kenneth Arnold's sort of stood out, not just because it was the first one that was publicized, but because of Arnold's uh, himself and the measurements he made. Uh, and that's my conclusion that the, the reason he, his sighting was transmitted worldwide and sort of is the, the, uh, the quote, the first sighting, unquote, was because he made, he made measurements that uh, gave some sort of a a feel for what was going on for the people who had, hadn't been there. As far as um, what I'm, don't really have any plans uh, for, for what to do uh, now. I, I may or might write up some uh, some of the uh, other cases I've worked on and put into books. I, I don't really know right now. I'm just sort of uh, reacting to uh, this present this present book. Exactly, and people can get it usually on the Amazon, right, or through Richard Dolan uh, Press webpage, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, paperback or ebook. The ebook is only six ninety nine, uh, and it's, uh, you can get it you can get it instantaneously, and uh, fly along with Arnold o'clock this afternoon. Exactly, and there are a lot of other uh, details. 
to discover in the book and I can definitely recommend it once again. I thank you Bruce once again for giving me a promotional copy to review it before the interview. I enjoyed it enormously. Thank you so much once again for that. Thank you, you're welcome and uh, thanks for, the, for calling. Thank you so much Bruce. Take care. Uh, best wishes and I hope we can discuss more about other cases and your work once in the future. Sounds good to me.